The year is 1989. People around the world are standing up to authoritarian regimes, including in Tiananmen Square in China. Back here in the U.S., the 1960s activist Abby Hoffman commits suicide at the age of 52 after expressing dismay about the country's turn towards conservatism. A Harvard Business Review article stipulates that working women have to choose between moving ahead in their careers or taking time out to stay home on what it calls the mommy track. And that year, the Pulitzer Prize for Drama went to The Heidi Chronicles by Wendy Wasserstein. My name is Jan Simpson. Welcome to All the Drama a podcast about the plays and musicals that have won American theater's highest accolade, the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. The Heidi Chronicles offered a wry look at a white, well-educated baby boom woman about to turn 40. In a series of scenes that follow her life from a nerdy high schooler to a new single mom, it also provides a social history of the ups and downs of the second wave feminist movement that began in the 60s. The play also reflects the life experiences of its author. Born in Brooklyn in 1950 to a wealthy textile executive and his flamboyant and artistic wife, Wendy Wasserstein was the youngest of five children and grew up on the east side of Manhattan in a home where the girls were encouraged to be smart and creative, but also to find good husbands. Wasserstein majored in history at Mount Holyoke College, got an MA in writing from the City University of New York, where her mentors included the novelist Joseph Heller and the playwright Israel Horowitz. And then she went on to get her MFA from the Yale School of Drama, where her classmates included the actress Meryl Streep, the playwright Christopher Durang, the costume designer William Ivy Long, and the set designer Heidi Ettinger, whose name Wasserstein would borrow for the title character in what would become her Pulitzer Prize-winning play. Wasserstein was the only woman in the playwriting program during her years at Yale. She was also one of the few writers there to reject the surrealism and black comedies that were then so popular. Instead, she favored more naturalistic slice-of-life plays. Her thesis project was Uncommon Women and Others, which centered around a group of Mount Holyoke friends meeting for lunch five years after their graduation to reminisce about their time at school and to look ahead at what the future might bring them. Uncommon Women got a professional production at the Phoenix Theater in New York in 1977, just two years after Wasserstein's own graduation from Yale. And it was made into a TV movie that was broadcast as part of the PBS Great Performances series the next year. Wasserstein's witty dialogue and sharp insights about the lives of contemporary young women quickly marked her as the voice of her generation. The Heidi Chronicles came a decade later, and as had become Wasserstein's trademark, the play borrowed heavily from her own life. A line that Durang, her best friend at Yale, said when they first met, you look so bored you must be bright, turned up word for word in the first conversation between Heidi 
and Peter, the boy she meets at a high school dance, and who becomes her best friend. The other scenes hopscotch across pivotal moments in Heidi's life and those of other young women coming of age at the time. Going to a campaign rally for Eugene McCarthy, where she meets the narcissistic but charming journalist Scoop Rosenbaum, who will become the main love of her life. Attending a women's consciousness-raising meeting a few years later. Joining protest marches on behalf of AIDS research. Showing up at weddings and baby showers. But both the first and second act have prologues set in the lecture hall, where the 39-year-old Heidi, who by then is an accomplished art historian, gives a talk about forgotten female artists as she tries to reconcile how feminism has let down women of her generation who were told they could have it all and are beginning to suspect that they can't. We're all concerned, intelligent, good women, she says in the play's most famous speech. It's just that I feel stranded and I thought the whole point was that we wouldn't feel stranded. I thought the point was that we were all in this together. The Heidi Chronicles opened at Playwrights Horizons in November 1988 and ran for 99 performances before moving to Broadway, where it ran for another 622 performances. It won that year's Tony for Best Play, the Susan Smith Blackburn Prize for Outstanding Work by a Female Playwright, the New York Drama Critics Award, and, of course, the Pulitzer. But feminists were split on how they felt about the play. Gloria Steinem was a fan. To have a play on Broadway about the change that a woman goes through in her life, to be in a situation where hundreds of thousands of people have sat completely absorbed in the life choices of a particular woman, this is a revolution in itself, Steinem declared. But Betty Friedan saw it differently. I was disturbed by the play. In depicting Heidi as troubled over career and family, Wendy Wasserstein inadvertently fed a media hype, a new feminine mystique about the either-or choices in a woman's life, Friedan complained. Ending the play with Heidi's decision to have a child on her own created the most controversy. But it, too, echoed Wasserstein's own life, she would become a single mother at the age of 48. She would also go on to write at least a half dozen more plays, including The Sisters Rosenzweig, a fictionalized version of the relationship between her and her two older sisters. And there might have been more, but Wasserstein died in 2006 of cancer at the age of just 55. To be honest, I was always somewhat mixed about Wasserstein's plays, but I also always looked forward to seeing what she would have to say about the women of my generation. And putting together this episode gave me an excuse not only to read through her work, but to call up my old friend Julie Solomon, who knows a lot about Wasserstein because she wrote a terrific autobiography of her called Wendy and the Lost Boys, a reference to the many gay men who were so important in Wasserstein's life. Hi, Julie. Hi, Jan. 
I know you have written about so many different things. You've written about movies and terrorists and Christmas trees and all kinds of things. So what drew you to writing about Wendy Wasserstein? Well, you as a writer will appreciate this. It's one of the few books, it may be the only book I've done that was actually a gift from my editor. Really? Yeah. Uh, I had just come off of the publicity tour for a book I'd written called Hospital, where I'd been embedded in a hospital for a year as a writer, not as a patient. (laughs) And my editor called me up and said, I have an idea for a, a biography. This was like a year and a half after Wendy Wasserstein had died. And she suggested it to me. And I know I'm supposed to say, oh, my God, that's wonderful. I want to do it. But I was exhausted from touring. And I I wasn't sure. I'd never really done a biography. So I said, oh, thank you. Let me think about it. And then I started doing some research about Wendy Wasserstein. And I read this fascinating article by Frank Rich, actually. It was one of those articles at the end of the year that the New York Times does, The Lives They Lived, where they, you know, that somebody writes really a more personal kind of appreciation. And I'll never forget, he had this line in there, and I'm paraphrasing, but it was something like, Wendy Wasserstein was the most public person in the world, but she had so many secrets. And I was immediately hooked. I said, oh, okay, yeah, I'd like, I'd like to do that biography. So that's how it got started. Had you seen any of her plays, and specifically the Heidi Chronicles, before you got into writing about her life? Yes, I had actually seen all of her plays, except for Miami, which had which really didn't have a run. But I had seen everything. So I guess I was a fan. But I, I, you know, I had been a movie critic, so I was definitely had always been much more of a movie person than a than a theater person, even though I went to the theater all the time. But yes, I definitely had seen uh, the Heidi Chronicles, and you know, it's funny. I, I, I think the first play of hers I had seen. I saw Uncommon Women later, but the first play of hers I had seen, I think, was Isn't It Romantic. And I remember remembering her for the funniest reason, because it's sort of a plot point in the play uh, that she gets messages on an answering machine from her mother. And at the time, answering machines were very new technology, and I was just kind of mesmerized (laughs) by that. I'm going to ask you, though, since we are focusing on her Pulitzer Prize winner, do, do you remember what you thought of the Heidi Chronicles when you saw it? Yes. I had very mixed feelings about it when I saw it. You know, it's funny. Wendy Wasserstein was three years older than I am. She was born in 1950. And it seems like a very short amount of time, age difference, but it was actually a generational shift for women. And my sister is four and a half years older than I am. And, and Wendy kind of fell into that same thing. So I remember when my sister started college, um, they had parietal hours. You know, men, men weren't even allowed to go into women's dorm rooms. 
by the time she graduated, they had co-ed dorms. And I entered school going to a co-ed dorm. And so it sounds like a small thing, but it was huge just in terms of how women thought of themselves. By the time I graduated from college, I actually went to law school before I became a journalist. My law school class was 35 at NYU was, I think, 35 percent women. But the women two years ahead of me, it was like five percent. And so I, I, I appreciated the Heidi Chronicles, but I didn't get, I didn't fully feel the full outrage that Heidi felt because I hadn't experienced it in the same way. But later, as I researched the book and understood more Wendy as a representative of a whole generation of women, which honestly I'm part of, but I didn't feel it the same way, the play struck me much more profoundly. I understood what went into it, sort of the experiences that Wendy was writing about, For uh, I think about her own life in a lot of ways, you know, issues about can you be a successful woman and be married and have children and, you know, a, a, a lot of, you know, sort of important issues that I think were very profound for women at that time. Uh, and probably still are, but in a different way. Feminists at the time, though, I think were split about the play when it came out. I actually came across uh, a debate between, uh, I believe, Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan, and I know they were always debating, but I think Gloria Steinem was saying it was really good to have uh, these issues that were serious and affecting women presented on a stage given such a wide audience. And and Betty Friedan and, and some others were saying, but this is a show that's dealing more with the woman's love life than her work life. It's making it seem like an either or choice. In your research, did you come across that sort of internal debate within feminism? Oh, definitely. And I think some of it has to do with, you know, obviously, to a certain extent, the debate. And I think I reacted to this a little bit myself. Um, I didn't grow up in New York. I grew up in a really small town in Ohio. So all women worked where I grew up. They didn't really have a choice. And so I think my initial reaction to it may have been influenced by that when I first saw it as a as a working person in New York, I think I felt like it was indulgent to even be able to have that debate. And I, I, I've, I've had revisionist history on that thought process, to tell you the truth, because I think that she was raising really serious issues through, through her art that were important. And you don't have to have experienced them exactly the way the characters in the play experienced them for the play to make you think about them. You know, there was a revival of Heidi um, just a couple years ago with uh, Elizabeth Moss, which I have to say was an incredibly great experience for me because somebody from the play tweeted something about my book, Wendy and the Lost Boys. So I tweeted a thank you back or something. And I ended up getting invited to go meet Elizabeth Moss backstage, which, of course, I was super excited about because of 
madman. And but you know, to have somebody of her generation and I actually went to see the play with a young woman who I was mentoring. She was uh, um, born in Bangladesh, but lived here, really smart young woman who was in this program called Girls Write, W-R-I-T-E now, and they matched up men, you know, writers and editors with high school girls. Uh, and uh, they got a block of, did they get a block of tickets or something? And I went with uh, Nishat to see the play and she loved it. Hmm. You know, this 17-year-old young woman from a very different culture, born in a very different era, and she just found it very provocative. That's interesting, because I was going to ask you if the play was still relevant or more of a time capsule, because as you may remember, that 2015 revival had to close early because um, it wasn't selling tickets. It ran just 53 performances. That's right. So I think it's both relevant and a time capsule. I think it was hard to get people to realize it, that it was still relevant. You know, I mean, it's a funny thing about the whole notion of what's relevant is so interesting because Sometimes seeing things in its time period tells you a lot about things today that that play did. It's not my favorite of Wendy Wasserstein's plays, to be honest with you. Which is? The play that I actually liked the best, I think, was The Sisters Rosenzweig. You know, and, and it's easier to be timeless when you're dealing with family. What did you think of the play? I'm curious, of the Heidi Chronicles. I recognize some of it, but I felt distant, I think, from it, even though I had had some of the experiences that I think Wendy uh, had, it seemed a very sort of privileged kind of conversation. That's a great way of putting it, because I think that was my reaction at the time, like I said, you know, it just seemed very far removed from my experience uh, growing up where I did, you know, those weren't conversations that resonated with me. I mean, my dad, he had two daughters. He always, he assumed that we were going to go to college and, you know, earn a living. You know, it was never about like get married and live off your husband. (laughs) I think also maybe, I was susceptible to what I think a lot of critics do, which is to dismiss women's plays when they are dealing with women's issues. Even today, a lot of times I see uh, plays by women uh, characterized as it's a lifetime movie, which sort of diminishes the play as though these issues aren't as serious as those raised by plays that men write. I, I totally agree with you. And, you know, the, the, the irony is, I mean, I look at my reaction to the play and your reaction to it and this whole idea of how women's plays are looked at, you know, that they're not serious, they're privileged, they're this, they're that. And I guess I have a couple of thoughts now that you're, um, you know, you're sort of making me think about that, A, 
privileged people can suffer too. <laughs> it's entirely possible to come from a quote-unquote privileged ba- background and and have heartache. And women's life then, and I would argue now, are still much more affected by the events at home than men's lives might be. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, look at all these articles we've been reading over the last year about women during the pandemic and, you know, being a mother during the pandemic. There are very many viewer articles about being a father during the pandemic. Um, And these are women who are working home and who are dealing with a lot of the issues of teaching their children, uh, helping their children with school and all of these things at the same time carrying on their careers. I would argue that probably most of that burden still falls on women much more heavily than men. Not to say that there aren't exceptions and that it's not better, but so I think I think Wendy was onto something, you know, and and I think that it could seem frivolous or it could seem lightweight, but I think she was actually dealing with important things. And you know, the irony is, you look at Jane Austen. Which is really, what are, what are those books about? They're about upper-class women deciding whether to get married or not. But they're also really interesting. And, you know, why are books about, you know, sending young guys off to war better? You know, it's sort of like, oh, that's a really important thing to write about. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think there's like a, there, there's definitely a prejudice against women's issues which I think is changing in drama, for sure. Unlike uh, a a lot of uh, Pulitzer winners who got frozen and frightened by winning the prize, Wendy Wasserstein kept turning out plays and plays that people wanted to see. I think there were like maybe six more plays after uh, Heidi and what do you imagine she'd be writing about today as baby boom women are marching into their 70s? Oh, I think that's such a great question. I, I think she'd be writing about exactly that, about what it's like to get older as a, as a woman. She would be 70 now. Um, I think she'd have something interesting and funny to write about. You know, one of the last the last play she was working at, you know, she she died quite young of cancer in, in her late 50s. And even as she was dying, she was writing a play about her relationship with her doctor, her cancer, not not a romantic relationship, her, her patient-doctor relationship. Welcome to my rash. The, the play never, it, it was workshopped. It never was really a finished play. But I think she was just somebody who figured out the world through her writing, that's how she that's how she tried to make sense of it. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to uh, thank you for looking back at her life, this particular uh, play. Well, thank you for doing this series. I think it's so interesting to to look at these plays and see what it was that people thought epitomized something about a moment in time. I think it's really interesting. Thanks. Thanks. And thank you for listening. I hope you'll come back next time and that you'll listen to all the other Broadway radio podcasts. And if you aren't already doing so, that you'll consider making a contribution to support our work, which you can do 
at patreon.com slash broadwayradio.